We've been, uh, we're going to be in John chapter 6 today. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, there's a Bible hopefully in front of you in the chair or under you, uh, or you can follow along on the screen as I, as I read John 6. Uh, it's in the New Testament, the second half of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We've been asking some questions of our text as we're going through our study. First of all, what is it that I'm reading? And then secondly, why do I think that the human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is presenting the facts and material to me in the way that they are? What are they hoping to accomplish? Um, There's a lot of ways to do Bible study. Perhaps you've heard, you know, what does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? What am I going to do about it? Really what we're talking about is the difference between exegesis and eisegesis. You probably have heard those Greek words before. Exegesis is drawing out of or reading out of the text. Eisegesis is reading into the text. And the problem with not understanding what it is that we're reading is when we jump to personalization or even application, we can easily read into the text whatever it is that we want or wherever we're coming from rather than truly understanding what God is saying and then out of that drawing personalization and application. So there's a lot of different ways that you can uh, talk about it, call it, but that's what we're doing today. As we jump into our text today, I want to begin with an object lesson. And the object lesson is who of us would ever reject an enormous check just because it came in the wrong envelope. Because perhaps the envelope didn't meet our standards or our expectations. Well, many of you know that that is a a real-life scenario that happened to me a few years ago. I got a piece of mail that looked like junk mail, and I threw it in the trash. And later on, I don't know what it was, I was throwing something away, and I kind of looked in the trash, and I'm like, that looks like a check, and, but it looked like junk mail. And I opened up the envelope, and there was a $50,000 check made out to our church from a foundation. And I thought, okay, I'm never throwing junk mail away again. <laughs> now, honestly, if, even if it had been thrown away, I'm sure the foundation would have issued another check when they realized the... the but so often we can judge something by its appearance, by the exterior. And this is exactly why the Jews in Jesus' day, and particularly the, the crowd in our passage, rejected Jesus. Because he did not fit their expectations. He did not meet their standards. He was from Nazareth. What prophet that they were anticipating and looking for came from Nazareth? Certainly not the Messiah in their mind. He had earthly parents Joseph and Mary, we're looking for somebody from heaven, not somebody of earthly origin. He didn't meet what they were expecting and looking forward to. I want to begin before we jump into our text with some background. The miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is significant in that it is the only sign recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, apart from the resurrection of Christ. Now, when we say sign, It's a word that John uses for miracle. The other Gospels call it miracle, but John calls the miracles signs, and he doesn't uh, cover all the miracles that Jesus performed, but specific ones. And for John, he is more concerned not with the power that it took to perform the miracle, but rather with what that miracle signified about Jesus's identity and what it taught us or what it still teaches us. So, 
The fact that this uh, sign or miracle appears in all four Gospels is significant in and of itself. And Jesus teaches on its significance and its meaning in the verses that follow our passage today. You need to understand that this is really a turning point in Jesus' ministry, his life and ministry, because the miracle was incredible, and it caused a peak in the expectation of the people in terms of his messiahship. But in the aftermath of this miracle or this sign, many of his disciples decided to stop following him. Very, very sad at the end, where because of the hard words that he spoke and because of their inability to understand what he was communicating, many of his followers decided to stop following him, to no longer uh, go with him. Verse 1, the the chronology is a little unclear. Different translations, some say after these things, other translations say sometime after this. It's difficult to know the period of time, but scholars believe that it's somewhere between uh, between John 5 and John 6, it's probably somewhere in the nature of six months. And the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, fill in some of the gaps for us. They let us know that Herod Antipas had beheaded or killed John the Baptist, and so the disciples were grieving over that. The disciples had just finished a preaching and healing campaign uh, throughout Galilee. Mark 6 fills us in on that. Multitudes of people had traveled to hear Jesus and see the miracles and signs that he performed, and now Herod was actually seeking Jesus as well wanted to kill him because the popularity of Jesus and his followers had got to an annoying point for for Herod. Jesus and his disciples had gone to the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. John also calls it the Sea of Tiberias, so both of those are talking about the same body of water. And they wanted to rest. They, They wanted to grieve over the loss of John the Baptist, Jesus's earthly cousin, And the disciples wanted to share all of the the victories that they had just uh, experienced and witnessed in their teaching and in their healing. And yet the crowd followed them, even to this remote place, this desolate area. The crowd followed them and would not give them any time alone. That's the context of our passage. Let's let's pick it up in verse 1, chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountain, some translations say hillside, and there he sat down with his disciples. I I believe John mentions the fact that it was a mountain because he's trying to draw a parallel with Moses, who he's going to reference later. As Moses met with God on Mount Sinai, Jesus is from God, and he's drawing upon the same imagery here. Verse 4 tells us that Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. John is the only gospel that records three Passovers. Uh, Most of the gospels only record one Passover. I think Luke records two. But we know that Jesus' earthly ministry lasted about three years, about three and a half years. So there's one Passover left to go, and so we know that the events of our passage happened about a year from Jesus' crucifixion. That helps us date what's going on here. Because it was Passover time, the people were thinking very much in terms of blood and flesh and lambs 
and unleavened bread because of their rituals and their customs and the feasts. A very different society than our society today. And they longed for a new Moses, a new prophet who would deliver them physically from the bondage of the Romans. They were tired of the oppression. They were tired of the, the slavery, the, the indebtedness to a foreign body reigning over them. Verse 5, therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread for so many of these to eat? Now, one of the questions that you might ask, why, why Philip out of all the disciples? Why would he turn to Philip for this answer? And I think a simple answer is that Philip was from Bethsaida. Chapter 1, verse 44 tells us that's the nearest town to this area. Philip would have known the local resources. He would have known what's available. But verse 6 tells us Jesus was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. How many times in life does God know what he's going to do, but he kind of is wanting to see how we respond? Do we exhibit faith? Are we trusting that even though we don't understand the circumstances and even though perhaps we can't think through all the, the solutions and scenarios that he has a plan in mind? Verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive even a little you might recall that one denarius was a typical day's wage for a, for a laborer. And so 200 denarii was somewhere in the neighborhood of about eight months' salary, a lot of money. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. <clears throat> but what are these for so many people? Back in 2 Kings chapter 4, you might want to check this out later, there's an interesting story of how Elisha fed 100 men with 20 barley loaves. So there's an Old Testament miracle that I had forgotten about actually until I was studying this week that this actually is kind of an allusion to or um, kind of uh, Elisha's uh, miracle was a foreshadowing of this in many ways. John's point, I believe, in giving us this detail about the barley bread is to highlight that Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the prophet Elisha. And if you remember, Elisha did greater things even than Elijah did. And many of us think of Elijah as like the, the, the quintessential prophet. Well, verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in that place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And notice that they're numbering the men and not the women and children as well. So this is upwards of 10,000, some say maybe even 20, 25,000 people. And notice how Jesus as the good shepherd, as John chapter 10 is going to tell us, uh, makes his sheep sit down in green pastures. Mark 6 informs us that Jesus, when he saw this crowd coming, even though they were grieving the death of John the Baptist, even though they were hungry, even though the disciples felt interrupted from getting to report on all of their ministry that they had just uh, experienced, Jesus had compassion on the crowds because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. That's where, that's where God is coming from. And so John 6 tells us that... Uh, the groups reclined in, in groups of 50 to 100. Jesus, verse 11, took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, likewise also with the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they were filled, he said to the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, there are some bogus theories out there that, that no crowd would have come to an event like this without their private little stash of food, and that the disciples and Jesus probably had a private little stash as well, so that perhaps what really happened here is that Jesus and the disciples, in being willing to share their private little stash, encouraged other people to share, and so everybody got out their private, and there was enough. But that's a very bogus theory in light of the fact that they all ate until they were satisfied. And the text even says here that they picked up 12 baskets full afterwards, literally from the five barley loaves that they started with. So there's a lot of uh, problems with that theory. And I'm always frustrated with theologians and scholars that feel the need to try and explain away the supernatural uh, that is just part of the Bible and part of who God is. Well, Mark 6 records for us also that, as I said, Jesus had just returned from, um, the, the disciples had just returned from teaching and healing, John the Baptist had just been beheaded, all of these things that I've mentioned. And so, in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the disciples are frustrated with the people. They're saying to Jesus, send them away. It's late. We're all tired. We're all hungry. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus is like, no, you feed them. And he insists upon drawing his disciples in to meeting their need. Well, and, and Mark 6 also tells us that even Jesus and his disciples had not had time to eat. And so it's interesting here that the significance of 12 baskets full left over is Jesus is communicating to his disciples in, in ministering to others before your own needs are met. Please be assured, please be confident that I will always take care of you. I will always provide for you. We'll talk about that more later, but there's a profound lesson there. Verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. The people want to seize Jesus. They want to make him king for their own purposes and expectations. And again, this is a high point of his popularity. But this also presents a huge human temptation for Jesus in his humanity, being fully God and fully man. In his humanity, the temptation is, hey, I can have a kingdom without the cross. But Jesus knew that before he could resume reigning as the Lion of Judah, first he must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who bears the sins of the world. Jesus was very much aware of that. Verse 25, when the people found Jesus on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? We're skipping over the, the wind at, uh, the, in Jesus calming the sea. We're going to go right to Jesus' teaching on the feeding of the 5,000. Verse 25, the people are wondering how Jesus got where he is, and Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. You notice how Jesus rarely answers questions, particularly kind of pointless, meaningless questions. How did you get here? He just skips right over that and gets to the heart of what they really need to know. And I think there's a, 
there's a subtle lesson for us here too in, in what is being communicated here is that so often as Christians, as believers, we want to jump right to spiritual issues. But meeting physical needs paves the way to address spiritual opportunities. You know, when we twice a month feed those who come to our church for the food pantry, when we demonstrate the hands and feet and love of Christ, it opens the door to pray for them and to meet other needs that they have because we have modeled that we care, that we're not just out to preach and try and save their souls, but we care about their situation. We care about the struggle of their families, what they're going through, and Jesus models that here so beautifully. Well, his solemn response, I tell you the truth, it occurs four times in our text, and he is preparing them for the, the powerful words that are going to follow. And, and basically, as we've said before, Jesus is warning them, do not be so captivated by the miracles, by the signs, by the power of what I'm performing, that you miss the truth of what these signs signify. Because that's really what I'm most interested in you capturing. It's not just that I met your need, not just that I did something, you know, um, miraculous, but what this is all saying about me. Verse 27, do not work for the food which perishes, perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then shall we do for a what then will you do for a sign so that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? Now, I don't know about you, but it's at this point where I'm holding my Bible in the middle of the week going, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, what has just happened? On top of that, there was a strong rabbinic belief that when the Messiah would come, he would again give manna. How much more explicit could Jesus be than performing a sign like Moses and, and feeding the people? I mean, it's just right in front of them, and they're saying, what other trick, what other magic are you going to do that we might believe? Verse 31, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who gave you the bread out of heaven, but it was my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Jesus says repeatedly in our passage that he came down from heaven, that he came from heaven. The point is, he wants them to equate him coming down from heaven as the bread of God. I am the bread of life, he says. I am the one who came down from heaven just as the manna came down. He wants them to see that. And Jesus is correcting their misconceptions on a number of levels. First, as we just said, he's, he's correcting them that the Father, not Moses, is the one who gave the manna. They need to understand that. And that the Father is still giving manna, even at this point. That this isn't something God did in the past, and now he's all out of miracles and ways to provide. God is still providing, not merely in the past. And the difference between the bread that God gives versus the bread that Moses gave is that God's bread, his, his providing, 
uh, satisfies eternally rather than temporarily. The, the manna back in the day, as you all recall, was good for only the day, and any that was saved beyond the day became bitter and gross. And God, his providence, his bread from heaven is everlasting satisfaction. And finally, Jesus is saying the true bread of heaven is not a commodity, it's a person. It's me. He said, I am the bread of heaven. Verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. I think one of the first things we need to understand is in our modern Western culture, bread is optional. It's maybe something that's served before dinner. Back at this time in this culture, bread was a staple of life. It was an essential. It was oftentimes you didn't have anything other than bread, and it kept you alive. Also, the I am statements that Jesus makes, uh, this is the first one in a series of seven. We've noticed that there's a lot of sevens in John's gospel. This is the first of seven I am statements that Jesus will make. The next is in chapter 8, verse 12, where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then right after that, he heals the blind man. Kind of elaborating on that, we're going to talk about that soon. Chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. And we talked about in ancient Palestine, as they were out in the wilderness, oftentimes sheep pens were kind of a circle with an opening. There was no gate. The shepherd was literally the gate. He would lay down and defend his flock against wolves or any wild animal that would come. He was literally the door of the sheep. Chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Chapter 11, verse 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life in the story of Lazarus and uh, Mary and Martha. Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, the seventh one in John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine. So this in our passage today is the first of many I am statements. And Jesus is communicating that God is the source of all life. And yet, he also has the prerogative to give life in and of himself. There's two verses in John that, that say that. Chapter 1, verse 4. And also chapter 5, verse 26, you might want to look those up later. Powerful words that it's not just the Father who gives life, but the Son also has the ability to give life, real and lasting life to his people. And so Jesus is saying, because of this, I am the true bread of heaven. You need to understand my identity, who I am, who I'm claiming to be. And in verse 35, when Jesus says that they will never hunger and never thirst, those, those words are emphatic in the Greek meaning like not even a chance, never, ever, ever will you hunger or thirst the one that comes to me. That's, that's the power of his claim. Verse 36, but I said to you that you have, uh, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, there he says it again, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Eight times in 27 verses, Jesus says, I've come down from heaven, just like the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. <clears throat> That sent me, that, who, uh, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, 
and I myself will raise them up at the last day. I want to spend the rest of our time today just really picking apart and applying everything that we've just read because there's a few points that I just felt jumped out of the text this week in terms of practical, relevant application. The first comes from the feeding of the 5,000, and it's the point I already mentioned that will we trust that as we, in terms of Philippians chapter 2, look not merely at our own personal interests, but also the interests of others, as we follow the example of Jesus who served others and didn't regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped and emptied himself and became a bondservant, as we do that, will we trust that God has our back? that God knows our needs, that it's not as the world says that we have to grab everything we can get and make sure that we're taken care of and our family and our loved ones are taken care of, and then maybe if we have time and resources, we reach out to others, but that we begin, even as we're considering our own needs, to consider the needs of others and to have a heart for that and, and to do something about that. There's some powerful scenes in The Chosen without ruining it for those of you who haven't watched it all yet. There's some powerful episodes where they actually get inside and examine that because some of Jesus' own disciples are really struggling with with that in in their own lives. The the turmoil, the challenges that they're going through, and they're, they're like, you know, you're going out here to the Gentiles, you're doing this and you're doing that, and I've got these problems back at home, and you're just, you seem to be ignoring that. You know, one of the disciples is, is physically impaired and is like, Lord, can't, can't you heal me, you know, as much as you're healing other people? And Jesus says, you know, think how much more powerful your witness is going to be that you're performing healing even though you still have, you know, a challenge. And God seldom makes sense to us. God seldom does things the way that we would expect him to do or want him to do things. But there has to be a fundamental trust that in fulfilling the Great Commission and in in reaching a world for the Lord, that He will take care of us along the way. That's the first thing I see. The second thing comes from verse 27. (laughs) Don't work for the food that perishes, but for that which lasts forever and gives eternal life, that Jesus, the Son of Man, will give to you. I think about how many things we, we chase after and we pursue in this life. And so many of those things won't matter a week from now. They won't matter next month. They certainly won't matter a year from now. And yet they consume us right now. We're all about those things. Whether it's hobbies, whether it's providing for our family, whether it's making a name for ourselves, whatever it is, we we chase after stuff. And so much of that stuff is just empty. Empty stuff. And Jesus challenges us. The Holy Spirit challenges us. Are you Are you striving for that which really is significant? Or are you chasing after the wind? Are you chasing after vanity? Isaiah the prophet years ago in chapter 55 of his prophecy said, Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? People have pointed out that there's two two different kinds of hunger. One is a physical hunger that food can meet and satisfy. The other is a spiritual hunger that food can never satisfy. I was reading this week, uh, William Barclay has a a wonderful comment. All of his New Testament commentaries are amazing because he gives background and culture and stuff that's, that's fascinating. But in his commentary on John, 
He says, historians record for us that in the years just after A.D. 60, the luxury of Roman society was unparalleled. During this time, they served <coughs> excuse me, exquisite feasts. In fact, meals costing thousands of pounds were commonplace. A Roman author and philosopher named Pliny tells of a Roman lady who was married in a robe so richly jeweled that it cost the equivalent of about $500,000. There was a reason for all of this, and the reason was deep dissatisfaction with life, a hunger that nothing could satisfy. They would try anything for a new thrill because they were both appallingly rich and appallingly hungry at the same time. I thought, does that not describe our world today? We've got so much, we don't even know what to do with it. And yet for everything we have, we are deeply dissatisfied. We are deeply longing for something that our, our money and everything we have does not quench. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm that. I'm the only one that can meet your hunger and meet your thirst. The next thing I see is in verse 29 where Jesus talks about belief, that the only work that God expects of us, the only requirement, is to believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the essence of faith. For by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Then it goes on to say, and we are God's workmanship, created in good works in Christ Jesus, that we should walk in them. So works don't earn our salvation. Works are the result or the fruit of our salvation. But the only thing that God requires of us is that we believe in Jesus. And yet in verse 30, the people demanded a miraculous sign. They thought the order was, see and then believe. But throughout Scripture, we see the divine order is believe and then see. And I love John chapter 11. That is so powerfully illustrated when Jesus is interacting with Martha. And he says to Martha, chapter 11, I think it's verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Wow, you know, oh, that we would believe and then see, rather than always demanding God to give us proof and evidence before we go out on the limb for him, to, to understand that's not how he works. If I will believe in faith, I will see things that will blow my mind away. Verse 35, it's a, it's a present active participle. All of these words for believe are in the present tense. And like I've said so many times, you have to understand uh, the tense in languages is huge. It's either a one-time action that we do kind of once and done, or it's an ongoing thing. And belief and faith and loving and all the things that God commands us to do are always present, active, continuous. Like not do it once and then you're done, but continue to do it over and over and over again. And that's the nature of belief. It's characterized by continual trust. And it results in everlasting life, a present and abiding possession. From the moment we believe, we receive everlasting life. Not someday when we die and go to heaven, but right now, the, the et eternal life of God comes in and starts transforming us. The final thing that I would say in this chapter, or this, uh, 
this passage is, will we trust and seek after the giver rather than the gift? You know, they were always looking for the bennies, for, for the, the trinkets. It's like Romans chapter 1, the people that worship the creation rather than the creator. But we have to understand, as, as James said in his letter, every good and perfect gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. It's like one of those old game shows, like Let's Make a Deal or whatever it is that you like to watch and you're, you're choosing which door. You choose Jesus, everything you could ever imagine or want is behind that door. You go after the trinkets and stuff and you might miss him. And, you know, those trinkets and benefits and prizes are short-lived and they do not satisfy. But when we choose him, when we begin a relationship with him, it's a package deal. Everything comes with him. He is the bread of life who gives life to all of us. The man I had always been regarded as the bread of God. But the people in our passage didn't regard the bread that had been fed to them as the bread of God because it had an earthly origin and it ended up as earthly loaves. Jesus was from Nazareth. He had earthly parents. The check was in the wrong envelope. Oh, that we would not miss... I mean, none of us would refuse $50,000 if we knew what was inside. But because of our expectations, because of our standards, because of our preconceptions, we prejudge and we miss the power of what it is that we're rejecting. There are really three reactions to Jesus in John 6. Some accepted him and continued to follow him, even though his words were difficult to understand, and even though he asked for a lot. Some continued continually questioned him and had question after question and never got around to believing, and some rejected him. Verse 66, at the end of our, uh, our chapter, as a result of this, his teaching, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. And I would say that the last two options, continually questioning and rejecting, are really the same. Because even if you're in the mode of just continually questioning and never believing, you never get there. There's never enough answers. But God calls us to simply believe, to believe based upon His character, to believe based upon His promises, His word, His, His proven faithfulness and mercy to us. And that's really where this text leaves us. How will you and I react? How will we respond? Will this be just a nice story that we read and say, oh, there's some nice lessons there, but that's not for me? Or, or will we allow the passage to convict us and challenge us? Am I chasing after stuff that doesn't matter? Am I allowing God to satisfy my need, or am I trying to satisfy it myself? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the challenge of your word through your Holy Spirit. We thank you that you are the bread of life that came down from heaven to not meet our temporary need, but to meet our needs forevermore. God, we thank you that the only work that you require of us is believing in the free gift of salvation through Jesus Christ in his atoning death on the cross, that he took our place at Calvary. He became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of you through him. 
And God, it's not a, a work that we can boast in. It's a simple act of faith, believing what he did once and for all, for all time, that begins new life with you. That's how we become your, your children. That's how we can know that we have eternal life, security forevermore. That's how we can know that we're in right relationship with you and that nothing can snatch us out of your hand. No one can snatch us out of your hand. You are the good shepherd and you love us. God, may these truths sink in and may we examine ourselves today and make changes, God, because many of us even today are, are running after, chasing after stuff that just doesn't matter. And you want to leverage our resources for kingdom purposes rather than for earthly success or boasting. Well, God, as we give of our resources today, we acknowledge that everything that we have is from you. And so whether it's a little or a lot, we thank you that you are faithful to provide. And we give out of what you've given, asking you to multiply it and bless it and meet the needs of this church, whether our giving is physically here or online, and asking that uh, the ministries in this community that we support, you would help our money to meet that need as well as the missionaries around the world that we support who are doing your kingdom work. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.